afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. I'd like to call in the ancestors to join us here today for this particularly juicy, interesting, and perhaps challenging topic. I call out to those ancestors who lived in ways different than we did, all who bring to us all that is good and true and beautiful in our lives that allowed diversity and variance and change and transformation and valued all of these things in their lives. We ask them to stand with us here today, for it is on their shoulders that we stand, and we can open ourselves up to know what they knew and perhaps allow that understanding to infuse our lives today with greater grace, greater acceptance, and more love. So we ask those ancestors to gather around us here today to hold us in this discussion that we might hear and speak and be together in a good way. We call out to the earth below us, this home on which we all stand. There are very, very few separations we can acknowledge anymore as real because we live on one planet and she is beautiful. And it is her dreaming that we thank here today that we might share this miracle called life. We give thanks for this place of home and belonging, for the beauty and the groundedness and the presence of this place. May we all be inspired in our efforts here today to live more gently, more powerfully, and more gracefully on this planet. We call out to the energy above, to the sky above us, to bring us blessing, bring us generosity, to bring us that energy by whatever name you call it from above that inspires us all to be better people. We call out to this energy to protect us so that we can gather around in a good way, whether you're listening live or you've downloaded this um, conversation some other time, some other place. We call out to the energy of the sky and the earth and the ancestors to hold us well that we might be safe enough together here to call out to the energy of our hearts, that place that can merge the passions of your belly that bring to you your soul's true purpose and the clarity of your mind to help you figure out what that passion means, that you might bring these things to, two things together in this day and begin to live it more clearly and powerfully than you have before. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining me here today. Our topic today is gender transformation in shamanism. So what is gender transformation, and why are we bothering to spend an hour to talk about it? Well, going back, back in 1964, Iliadi published a book called Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. It's 610 pages of scholarly work on shamanism. And the book is still available today. It's very popular. Many people still consider it the Bible of shamanism. Why is this significant? This is significant because at that time, shamans around the world were still considered crazy people. They were considered epileptics. Another term they used was jugglers. They were considered charlatans. They were not given any credit for what it is that they are doing. And they were dismissed out of hand. And what Iliadi's book did by spending his significant scholarly capital to write and get this book published, he presented a platform on which academics could begin to explore shamanism as a valid expression of human spirituality. It's probably the simplest way to say it. 
And in doing so, he began the contemporary academic exploration into this um, human gift, this, this birthright of humanity. Um, within the, this book, Eliade defined a term called classical shamanism. He called classical shamanism. It's a term I don't necessarily accept as valid, but it's important because it's guided our perspective about shamanism. And within classical shamanism, um, a lot was compared to Siberian shamans. And what's interesting in many different, of the different cultures in that huge, vast realm of land on the planet is um, the presence in their shamanic lives of transformed shamans. Um, however, the details of the lives of these transformed shamans, while they were spoken about, the details were often left out or dismissed as insignificant or not really explored deeply. And um, yet they were, in some of these places, believed to be the most powerful shamans. So what is a transformed shaman? A transformed shaman is a biological male, so someone born as a male, who transforms his gender from masculine and feminine to become a shaman. The transformed piece refers to the gender metamorphosis that occurs within the male as he becomes female. Transformed shamans are also called soft shamans in the literature, and this refers to the fluidity of their sexual and gender identification. This transformation is expected of men in these cultures to in becoming shamans, not all men, but most, and is sanctioned by their culture. Transformed shamans appear primarily in cultures where the shamans are traditionally women. This is another bias that's come out in the academic world that is not valid, that the, the bias that shamans are men. And in many, many cultures, shamans are traditionally women in Africa, Asia, all over the world. So male or female, the novice is first called by spirit, then training begins. However, boys were, who were called had to first become female, then become shamans. And that transformation begins with learned behavior and outward changes and then progresses through sexual and physical transformation. So these gender-variant shamans represented for their communities a sphere of spiritual power that exists beyond the male-female polarity that we, as contemporary Americans, consider real. We don't, we don't open ourselves very well as a culture to the possibility that perhaps our perspective on this polarity is limited. So these gender-variant shamans um, comprise a special class of androgynous shamans who may have unique functions that vary culture to culture, and transformed shamans are seen by their culture as belonging to a third or alternate gender. So let's explore a little bit today, this afternoon, on what it means culturally to acknowledge more than two genders. So what we need to be able to open our minds up to here today to understand this from a shamanic perspective is that back in the time pre-contact, in other words, in these shamanic cultures before they were contacted by Western thinking forces, which often became dominating and colonizing forces around the globe. And this is true all over the globe on every continent. And frankly, every current dominating, um, 
dominant, um, popular world religion today has this in their history from doing this somewhere on the globe. And so prior then to these, the, the contact with this world, this new world in essence, the old world, um, didn't necessarily feel from their experience that someone's biology as a given then defined their gender. And gender has a lot to do with the roles we perform in our culture. We don't think about this very much in America. But gender has a lot to do with what is your job in your community? What is your role? What do you do in your culture um, to keep the day-to-day life moving forward? And that in a typical indigenous culture, everybody's got a job to do to keep life going forward, right? Um, so there's, there's biology, there's gender, then there's sexual preference. Who are you sexually attracted to? And that was not necessarily considered to be a given relative to someone's gender or their biology. And now in a shamanic culture, because you're also focused on someone's soul's purpose, there's also your calling. There's your relationship with spirit. Beyond your relationship with family and culture, there's your relationship with the spirit world and what you have uniquely been placed on this planet to do. What is the gift that you have to bring? And understand, in an indigenous culture, particularly shamanic culture, at that stage in a culture's manifestation on the planet, there was a strong belief that every person had a unique gift to bring. Some people's, few people's, but some people's gifts were shamanic gifts. But there were many other gifts that were con- considered important and equally valuable in the richness and the strength and the growth and the health, the longevity, the life of the people. So we, in our strange American culture, tend to romanticize and get all worked up about the people that seem to be special, like movie stars and shamans. And I think that we diminish and do not value some other very, very important roles, like the jobs that keep electricity flowing so that you can all be listening to me on your computers or downloading on your iPods what charge that battery. I mean... There are things that happen every day that people do that no one really makes a big says boo about, and but your life would be significantly changed if you didn't have that. And in in shamanic cultures, there was somewhat more respect paid to the people that knew how to tan the hides or make the pots or find the right herbs for healing or you know hunt effectively, gather effectively. You know, it imp- was important. So the gender roles, everybody's gender roles were important that, that made life work day to day. And your unique gift, that which you brought into the community that was beyond your gender role, because the gender roles weren't necessarily all that unique. But even if we're just talking about shamans, not every shaman is the same. So even if a community had three or four shamans, they were different. They had different unique skills. So part of what we're looking at when we talk about gender variance 
is we're already talking about a culture that values variance in all forms in the culture, not just gender, not just sexual preference, but really values the uniqueness and the diversity of every individual being. And so this is what we're talking about today is a way of thinking about life and human beings in that life that truly values diversity. doesn't just give it lip service and then expects everybody to be the same and ridicules people who are different, but a culture who believes so deeply in the power of the great mystery that they would look at something utterly unknown to them, unfathomable to them in another person and go, wow, the great mystery is amazing. I don't understand all of it. And this is an amazing expression of the great mystery before me, and I don't understand it. But I can still welcome it into my community, can still offer it dinner, and I can still be in relationship with this difference, this diversity in my life. So this is what we're talking about today, is an openness to diversity, and a particularly juicy expression of it in gender and gender variance and shamanism. And we're also going to talk even deeply today about why we are bothering to even explore this as contemporary people. So I hope that you will join me as we come back um, from this break as we continue our discussion about gender variance in shamanism. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Why Shamanism Now with your host, Christina Pratt. And today we are talking about gender variance in shamanism. So why are we talking about this? Well, one of the reasons we're talking about this is persecution. Persecution is really, really bad karma. There's a great book, it's a little science fiction book, called Only Begotten Daughter, and I at the moment can't remember the author, but I'm sure you can find it at Powell's.com. It's a great bookstore in Portland, Oregon, Powell's.com. Anyway, in Only Begotten Daughter, the daughter of God is being taken to hell um, by Satan because she can't believe hell can possibly be worse than what's going on on Earth. And she looks um, at all the people and she says, wow, there's a lot of people here. How come so many people are here? And Satan says to her, because everyone, any other group of people believes belongs here, is here. And she thinks for a minute and she says, hmm, well then who's in heaven? She says, well, there's only four people in heaven and goes on in a very funny discussion. But my point is, how many different groups of people have to persecute other groups of people before we come to understand that it doesn't serve anyone? What, I, what I've experienced many times, usually, frankly, in Unitarian churches, but what we need to understand is any place in anybody's good book that reinforces the right to persecute others, particularly around their gender or their sexual preference, is a misinterpretation of the word. Because when we engage directly with spirit, which is what we do through shamanism, is every person is able and empowered by being given the old traditional skills to communicate directly with spirit. And never have I seen or heard that bias that is there in many of the world's organized religions come through in people's direct relationship with spirit. And it's not present in most shamanic cultures. There are some, but primarily in the majority of shamanic cultures, this bias does not come through. 
And we need to understand that persecution is not the word of God, by whatever name you call God. So what does come through from spirit? What does come through from spirit when we're asking about these issues of gender and gender variance and and what is really going on here? So again, this is hard for us to understand because we're very locked into the biases of our time around gender. And our time very much supports this idea of kind of the uber male and the uber female, these these these, these very testosterone-driven intelligent men and these very estrogen-driven sexy women and that power is divided along those lines and they go forward in great heterosexual bliss. And frankly, I just don't think that's reality because when I studied the science in college back many decades ago, I didn't think the science they had at that time supported that idea. It's just not supported in spirit or science. So let's look at some examples of what does come through in other shamanic cultures because I find it truly fascinating that if you just ask spirit what's going on, you get a very different picture of what's actually going on. So one example is from the Pacific Northwest coast up here where I am. There's a wonderful teacher up here named um, Johnny Moses. He's a Pacific Northwest coast ancestor. He's a healer and a storyteller in the Sisuwis medicine teachings, and a lot of his work comes through the Red Cedar Circle. So you could probably Google any of that and find him. Well, you can Google Johnny Moses and find him, frankly. But anyway, what he said is that in the old ways of thinking, there were eight genders. So in their way of thinking, there were eight genders. And that you would only sweat with your own gender. So in other words, this whole argument we've got going on about men and women sweating and men and women sweating together, I mean, they got eight sweat lodges going because there's eight genders, right? And that you also needed to be taught by an elder of your own gender, well, and this is really challenging today because, of course, we have very few elders that can teach anybody anything, much less finding one that's of your own gender. But this is an important thing to remember for those of you who actually read things about shamanism and look at the literature. If it is traditional to only speak to your own gender and you are of a people that considers that there are eight genders or more, then if a straight white man comes into your village to speak and you're not a straight white man, you're not going to share with him the teachings of your people because you might be, well, anyway, a different spirited man or a woman. So there is a whole lot of the essential teachings of traditional peoples all over the globe that did not get recorded because those who held that wisdom were not met by someone of their own gender with whom they could speak freely. So it's very important to understand that when you read our academic perspective of the past, it is very, very biased. Because it is very biased by the people who were out doing the work. Not because they were trying to bias it, but just by the very fact of showing up in their own person. They limited the information they were going to be given. Okay, so moving right along to Johnny Moses' people. So, eight genders. So you had a man with a man's soul. You could have a woman with a woman's soul. You could have a man with a woman's soul that was considered a man-woman. You could have a woman with a man's soul, which was considered a woman-man. And you could have a man with both a man and woman's soul. You could have a biological woman 
with both a man and woman's soul. You could have a person of either gender who simply had everything. Not quite sure what that looked like, but that's number seven. And number eight of the gender in this recognized by this culture was something that's simply not translatable into our English culture, English-speaking culture. So, isn't that interesting? So, think about it this way. I mean, do the math, if you remember your statistics from high school. So, you're looking at biology. You're looking at gender role. You're looking at sexual expression or preference. You're looking at the calling that a person has. You're looking at a sense of a person's spirit or soul. And so if all of those are variables and you do the math, we're talking about cultures, there are some cultures perceived of 64 genders, if all, since all of those things are variables. So remember that we're talking about cultures where your dress, your language, even your hairstyle would convey what your gender role was in the community. Many people, if you haven't traveled perhaps, or studied these things, perhaps you don't know that in a lot of these cultures, what, what a person wears is communicating to everybody else their gender, their sexual preference, their relationship status, their, uh, perhaps their leadership or spiritual functionary status in the community, and that, that these things are communicated by what people are wearing. And so it's very obvious. So one's transformation from one to another is very clearly communicated um, and that others can understand the change and they can understand, and we need to understand that these cultures where even the specific folding of a cloth on your head could communicate all uh, tons of information about a person and their orientation. So gender, our maleness and femaleness, is determined by biology. It is both it is social, it is experiential, and it has sexual factors. And in shamanic cultures, it is believed to also have been determined by spirit factors as well. So gender, particularly gender variance, is an aspect of shamanism. And shamans are female and male and of various transformed genders if we look at shamanism globally. So gender, from a shamanic perspective, apparently is fluid and flexible. That gender is not an inborn trait when we are asking spirit about how to live. Um, biological sex, social roles, and sexual orientation are not linked biologically. It's not a given, but they are influenced by each other. And gender identity is part of a range of options for human experience, all equally considered valid expressions of a person's spirit. And that's the other thing to remember. All of these aspects are considered an expression of spirit. Sex is not considered separate from someone's spiritual expression of their life. Gender is not separate. The physical experience of life is not considered separate in shamanic cultures. Separation is a myth of organized religion. It is not the reality of shamanic people, and it doesn't need to be your reality. So shamanic cultures look at the nature of all of these possible options and at the unique expressions of the human spirit. In traditional shamanic cultures, gender is an acquired trait with a corresponding social role to fulfill. And in these um, tribal belief systems, there are more than two genders, and all of these genders have well-defined traditional roles. For example, 
in the tribal belief systems of over 130 North American Native peoples, biological sex does not dictate the social role or gender the individual assumes. And the important thing to understand is that this could evolve as you evolved in your life. So there was not the pressure to choose your sexual orientation and fight for it. You were simply free to be the person you felt spirit was calling you to be. So for more discussion about gender variance in shamanism, come back after this break. I hope that you're enjoying today's show. We are live. You're welcome to call in or email. Welcome back, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and today we are talking about gender variance in shamanism. And as the nice lady said, we are live. You are welcome to call in or email me at christina at lastmasscenter.org. And for those of you who haven't sorted it out yet, my website is lastmasscenter.org, and you are welcome to schedule a phone session or a healing session through that website. So it's simple, easy, and electronic. There's also an 800 number for those of you who are electronically computer-challenged. So, continuing on, what does any of this gender variance have to do with you? I would like for you to know your own divinity. It is much easier in life to transform when you have direct access to your divine self. What do you think your guru means when your guru says he or she is within you? What do you think Christ meant? What do you think all of these divinely inspired beings that inspired all of the world religions meant when they talked about being within you? Each one of us has access to our divine self, which is our connection, our relationship, our download of the divine energy that is present in our world experience. And you can connect with that part of yourself as a teacher in the same way you connect with your helping spirits when you learn how to journey. So why is this important? Well, because, one, you need, we all need a relationship with our divine selves. Transformation is so much easier when we have divine guidance. Direct contact with that divine self is, is essential. But what I'd like to do today is explore a little further what the divine is from a shamanic perspective. So remember that in these shamanic cultures, the core of each individual's reason for being here is their soul's purpose. And this is each person's soul's purpose is believed to be the unfolding of the face of the great mystery through each individual life. And so every person is sacred. How they choose to live is part of the unfolding of this mystery, and that is the highest sense of the divine in these, in these people's experience of things. That doesn't mean some people didn't go off the rails and were horrible people. But that person still had a soul's purpose to express that may have gone unexpressed in that life. Nonetheless, everyone had a soul's purpose. And the great mystery was a really, really high concept. And, and it's experienced by these people in all living things. Traditional um, American Indian cultures believe that the highest power is the great mystery, that it is natural then that they held mysteries themselves to be sacred. Much of what they didn't understand, like someone else's gender variance, was considered sacred by definition because it was a mystery, not because it was different. It wasn't considered bad because it was different. It was considered sacred because it was a mystery. Imagine that. You know, imagine going through your life where you hold everything you don't understand as sacred 
everything different from you as sacred, as an expression of the divine force in your life. Your life would be much more magical than going through the life as we are trained as Americans to shun the other, to demonize the other, and to point a finger at the other and call them the axis of evil, to coin a phrase. Anyway, moving right along. So by incorporating gender-variant peoples into their societies, they successfully utilize the different skills, insights, and spiritual powers of these alternate genders, all because they're embracing this great mystery. So one of the things that is common in the um, thread of shamanism around the globe is the creation mythology that speaks or tells stories of an androgynous godhead. Um, And there are, so the transformed shamans often existed in these cultures because there's this mythology that speaks of the being who came from the spirit world to help the people. This is is a story that repeats itself over and over and over again in shamanic people. The humanity has forgotten how to live well together. Hmm, does that sound familiar? Perhaps that would describe the time we are all living in today. So humanity has forgotten how to live well together. They're killing each other. They're poisoning the planet. They're um, causing animals and plants to go extinct. They're just living in a really bad way. And so the spirit world takes pity on them and sends a spirit to come, come down to the people to remind the people, to teach them once again how to live in a good way. And Often, in many, many shamanic cultures around the globe, on all different continents, that divine being is androgynous. It's a shapeshifter. That divine being manifests as men, it manifests as women, it manifests as a man with a woman spirit, it manifests as a woman with a man spirit, it manifests as a being with multiple spirit. And what's important is, while this is acknowledged in the literature, I don't think it's understood very well because it's still being understood through this lens of either or. It's either male or it's female or it's both. And I think what's important to understand is when you start looking at all the variables and all the possible combinations, it's not either or. It's all. It's, a, it, it's very much of a too, too limiting a perspective. So in the third year of my four-year training, what we work with is power and this energy of the divine and what is the true nature of divine energy and how does it move within our bodies. And as I've worked with people over the last two decades with this work, what I see is that that old paradigm of male or female or both is far too limiting for the true power of the divine energy. And that we're really talking about that is something more like a Taoist perspective of yin and yang energies, which cannot be separate. They cannot be separated. That either one separate leads to a path of death. They're not life-affirming as separate paths. Yang energy, true yang energy in its fullest expression leads to extinction. It expresses itself into nothingness, into extinction. And true yin energy, left to its own devices, unperturbed by any other energy, leads to stagnation and death through stagnation. And so both of these energies must be connected to the other to 
generate life. And, and this dynamic, because it's not two different energies, it's two manifestations of the same energy. The dynamic pulse of energy in our universe is, is expressed through Taoism and this yin-yang energy. And that is what we're seeing in this divine androgynous being, is that to be divine... Of course, this being would need to be able to manifest true yang energies, true yin energies, and all of the manifestations of these energies in physical form. So this is what's coming through then as we are looking at the way shamanic people are viewing gender variants, and in particular, these transformed shamans, is we're seeing their understanding, their experienced understanding of divine energy that it is not a man or a woman. It is all expressions of humanity and more. And so this divine androgynous self, because of course you have this divine self within you, is all possibilities. It's not two, it's not both, it's all. And all leads to many, many possible expressions of divine energy within. So this is then at the core of why these shamanic people were open, not only because they valued the mystery, but because they had sanctioned within their culture these shamanic trance states. It's not just the shamans who journey. The adults also journey, because it was part of their responsibility of adults to have a working relationship with spirits so they can make good decisions for their family. And there are sanctioned cultural ceremonies in which everybody is in an altered state. And in these altered states, everyday, ordinary reality people are connecting with the divine. And what they are learning from their connection with the divine is that the divine embraces all, because the divine is all, and that divine energy is present in all, not just all people, and their expression of their self through gender and sexual preference, sexual identity, and their calling spiritually, their unique gifts. But that divine energy is present in the mountains. It's present in the water. It's present in the plants and the animals. And that, that divine energy manifests beyond our wildest imagination in all things. And it is the great mystery to behold this great diversity and the interworking of this diversity, and then to ask yourself as a human being the question of how do I fit in to this great mystery? How do I fit in to this expression of the divine? Not how do I own it? How do I run it? How do I try to control it? How do I make the most money off it? But how do I most fully express my part in it, my unique part in this unfolding expression of the great mystery here on the planet. And so this is why I feel this is a valuable topic for all of us to explore for at least an hour in our lifetime, is the possibility that our sense of gender is limiting and that those people around us who are really challenged and limited and persecuted by our cultures demand that you gender identify and this expectation that you gender identify heterosexually as male or female and heterosexual, people that have to fight for the right to be who they truly feel that they are. It's such a waste of time and energy for all of us. For all of us, we all lose out. <laughs> 
because we are losing out with coming into friendship and communion and connection with expressions of the divine all around us. Someone who is different from you in race or color or sexual preference brings the divine into your life and into your home if you will only open the door. So this is why we're bothering to talk about this today. In the last section of our show here today, we will speak even more delicately about the transformed shaman. Thank you for joining me here today. Welcome back, everyone. This is Why Shamanism Now. I am your host, Christina Pratt, and today we are discussing gender variance in shamanism. So hopefully, by this point in the show today, I have opened up the possibility that gender variance is not simply about a quote-unquote lifestyle choice. But is about, but that this is about the feeling of the movement of your soul towards its purpose and allowing the most authentic and unique expression of yourself towards that gift. Now, your soul's purpose does not change in your lifetime, but the vehicle you choose to express it with does. So it's important to understand that distinction. In other words, I would hope that your parenting is an expression of your soul's purpose. At the same time, I hope you're doing meaningful work in the world that is also an expression of your soul's purpose. So parenting and your work are each different vehicles that you're choosing to express your soul's purpose. And so what we're talking about in terms of exploring the possibility of gender variance and gender being a far more interesting conversation than just boys and girls and other is that my gender role in my community, my choice of my life's work, my expression sexually, that all of these things are in service of my soul's purpose, my expression of my soul's purpose. And I'd like us just to simply consider that possibility. So if we go back to these transformed shamans I was talking about in the beginning of the show, and understand these transformed shamans are not just in Siberia. They're all over the globe. They're throughout Asia and Asia Minor. They're in Africa. They're all over. And they most often show up in cultures where shamans tend to be women, where men have to become women to be shamans. What is interesting is that in cultures, in the few cultures where shamans tended to be men, women who were called to shamanism did not have to become men to become shamans. So this transformed shaman pattern globally around the world only goes one way. It's only men having to become women to become shamans. A woman in any culture can become a shaman without having to become a man. Now, the parallel pattern or the balancing pattern to this in indigenous cultures would be a woman having to become a man to be a warrior or a hunter. That's the balancing pattern to the shamanic pattern. But understand, these patterns didn't go both ways gender-wise. And I find that fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about this transformed shaman. So the transformed shaman traditionally, as we look at these sort of cross-culturally, has five stages of transformation. And um, some stages are more or less pronounced depending on the culture. But the first stage is the call to the, from the spirit world. Um, which usually comes um, for a gender-variant shaman in a pre-adolescent childhood age, often in the form of a dream or visions. And so what's important, you have to remember in these shamanic cultures, is there was almost always somebody throughout your childhood asking you about your dreams. Not just because they wanted to figure out if you were going to be a shaman, 
They were trying to figure out what you were doing here. They're trying to figure out what needed to come into your life to support you in living your soul's purpose from your dreams and your visions. So these things mattered. People listened. They asked you about your dreams in the morning, and they cultivated through that your own ability to remember your dreams and to talk about them. So anyway, so in these cultures, there were many ways that they would then test the boy to see if this calling was solid, was a real calling, or just a passing dream or vision. And one of my favorite examples that I can remember from researching the encyclopedia was they would put the young boy in a area to play while everybody was working, and they would put, you know, toy versions of the gender role items in with the boy. So if it was a culture where the women made clay pots, then they put clay in there for making clay pots. And if it was a culture where men hunted with bows and arrows, they put bows and arrows in there. So anyway, whatever it was, whatever the tools of the gender were, would be in there in their toy forms. And then they'd set the bushes on fire. And the kid would run for safety. And what they looked for was which tools did the kid grab? What tools did the boy grab as a way of confirming what gender orientation this child was being spiritually called to? So the second and third stages of transformation, um, the traditional male gender ab- was abandoned for those of, and the, those of the female were adopted. The second stage involves the outward transformation. Um, the boy is treated as a girl, dressed as a girl, given the girl's hairstyle, taught the female language if these things were all part of the culture, and often would receive a female name. The third, third stage would involve training by the women in the skills necessary to fulfill the culture's female gender roles. Okay, the fourth stage of transformation would come after adolescence. Um, and that is when the training in shamanic te- techniques would begin and the boy would be trained either by female shamans or by an elder transformed shaman. And note, the shamanic initiation here is based on the initiation into adulthood. So it doesn't come until after adolescence and after the cultural um, initiation from childhood to adulthood. The other thing that's important to know, because people get this confused all the time, the call, which came when this kid was a boy, um, is not necessarily the initiation in and of itself. Those two things are not necessarily the same. So the fifth stage of initiation was into the... So they've learned to be a shaman, and the fifth stage is initiation into the art of being a receptive partner in sexual intercourse. And that this initiation um, was often combined with learning about the sacred art of using sexual energy as a healing form. And that's something that is almost completely lost in our culture. So as we're coming to a close here in this section, I'd like to share one of the favorite quotes that I found in researching the encyclopedia. It's from the early 20th century, where there were still stories told of these older transformed shamans. Um, and this is from the Chukchi people in um, near the Arctic. And um, this is about uh, these transformed shamans who succeeded in the true physical transformation, which is the sixth possible stage, with the aid of their helping spirits. And the, the sh- these transformed shamans were believed to embody their helping spirits so completely that they physically transformed their male genitalia into female. And the partner of one of these transformed shamans confessed that he hoped that in time, with the aid of the helping spirits, his transformed shaman partner would be able to equal the real soft men of old and to change the organs of his sex altogether. So 
this speaks to a degree of transformation that is very, very challenging for us to understand in our contemporary culture. But imagine being able to embody this calling so fully, to embody your relationship with your helping spirit so fully that you are able to change your physical form. So this is what we're talking about, is the ability to surrender so completely to the reason you are here that you can even change what we consider physical fact, which is your biology. So I hope these ideas have been interesting for you here today. We have an excellent show next week with um, author William Horton, who is a dear friend, and he and his sister-in-law, Marta Ramirez Oropanez, I just murdered her last name, have created a beautiful book called The Toltec I Ching, which is a blending of Toltec wisdom and the I Ching. And William will not only speak about this book next week, but he will also answer the question for us, what do people today need to know to transform from where they are into people of courageous hearts? I hope you will join us next week. I give thanks to the ancestors, the earth below, the sky above, and the hearts that connect us all. Um, join us next week, and if you need any information in the meantime, you can find us at lastmasscenter.org. Thank you all. Thank you.